All right, so we're going to be in Luke, and you can turn to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin looking at verse 1. The title is Christ the Savior is Born. It's a familiar account um, that we're going to read from here. It's probably one of my favorite accounts that we have in Scripture to read from about the birth of the Lord. Um, It's one I often find myself coming back to and wanting to teach from. Um, And I I want to read this, and obviously this is going to be a familiar story and account to all of you. And, you know, one of the things that um, pastors will struggle with around this time of the year and around Easter, and whenever you teach John 3.16, is what am I possibly going to say? What am I possibly going to say that's going to make this uh, stand out? And I felt so compelled this, this year to make certain that we just read the account and just identified the things that we can see in the text and allow them to speak and minister to our hearts. And so with that, let's begin reading at verse 1, and we'll take that down to verse 5. And we're going to look at the humble birth our Lord had. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So the census, the world uh, declared that they wanted to know what they had available to them as resources. And so they make a, a, a decree that everybody's got to travel to their hometown, home village, and, and be registered there. And this, for them, they, that's calling for this, there's no sense of, of Christmas. There's no sense of, of the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world. There's no sense of this one that's been prophesied about. And, hey, we need to get this you know, a young man and this young lady up in Nazareth down into Bethlehem. None of that's happening, but God knew that it would happen. God knew full well that one day this virgin who was carrying the Son of God would need to find herself in the city of Bethlehem. And so we are given a prophecy about the birthplace of our Lord. It says in Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this one that's going to come forth, he's going to be a ruler. He's going to come from Judah. He's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. And he's going to be one that is eternal. And that one that is being talked about is Jesus. This is a well-known truth. When the Magi asked the question where the king of the Jews was to be born, it didn't take them very long at all to come up with the answer in Bethlehem. And from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, it's just a short little hike. And so it was right there at the doorstep. Uh, And that he would come and be born of of this seed in the lineage of David. This is something that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses uh, 12 and 16, a prophecy given to uh, King David 
that he would have one that was going to sit upon his throne, that he would have a descendant, a seed that would come, and it would be a throne that would be established forever. And while Jesus has established the work of salvation that we have entered into for all of eternity, I believe there's a literal kingdom that he will establish, and that will happen at his second coming. We're not going to talk about it, but these are the things, these are some of the prophecies that would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, so some you know, 690 years beforehand, the, the Lord is telling us exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. Um, a thousand years ahead of time, that he's going to come and he's going to be a descendant of David, and that is exactly what has happened. But when Jesus and this one that's prophesied comes, you would expect that he would have come and would have had the grandest of receptions. But of course, we know the Christmas story, and we know that he did not have a grand reception here on earth, but he was rejected. And he had a very humble birth. And it's this humility that I, I want to talk about for just a moment. Now you may say, well, he was, he was a baby. I mean, how can we associate um, humility with this infant that has zero control over where he would be born? But what we have to remember is that the first day of Jesus' life was not the first day of the Christ's life. The Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is from eternity past, just as we read there in Micah, from old and from everlasting. So the counsel of the Godhead in eternity past said, you're going to be born there in Bethlehem. You're going to be born in one of the most humble set of circumstances. Uh, Bethlehem was just a little village. Now, it means a lot to us for good reason. And we, we sing songs about Bethlehem, but Bethlehem was not a some powerhouse city. This was not a city of power and influence. This was just a little village. But it was the place that the Lord said that his son would be born. And so indeed, the Godhead knew that he was going to be uh, coming to this scene, and he did. But it's not just you know, an assumption we're making from Scripture of the humility, because when Paul begins to talk about the birth of Jesus... Um, and his coming into this world, he speaks of his humility. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So it's not just his birthplace, but it's the very fact that he would even come. It was a humbling thing to, to be the, the divine one and allow yourself to be fused with the nature of humanity. Now we look at that and maybe it's hard for us to understand um, how that is humility because we're like, well, he became like us. I mean, what's wrong with us? We're at the top of the food chain, right? We're, we're created in the image of God. And certainly we are unique and we stand out and from all of God's creation as those that he made in his image. But it doesn't take away from the fact for him to become a human was a huge downgrade. Now listen, he fully retained his, his divinity, but he 
is, that comes together in his humanity. And the text says that this was something that was equivalent to not being worried about your reputation. That it was something that he did to be a bond servant and that he humbled himself even going to the cross. It's something that maybe we don't think of, but you, how do you go from divinity to taking on humanity? I'm not saying he gave up his divinity, but still is there. And I heard this illustration many, many years ago that I love. And it's an example of imagine if you were in heaven. And um, the Lord says, listen, uh, you know well the story of redemption and how my son came and became a, a man and he died upon the cross. And he goes, uh, I've got another planet out there that needs to be redeemed. And uh, it's a little different, this planet. It's a planet full of dogs. And this planet full of dogs, they are rabid. And they are fighting, and they are biting, and they are devouring them. But I created them, and I want to reach them. So I want you to go on a mission for me, and I want you to go redeem them and let them know how much I love them. Lord, I'd be glad to do that. I'd be glad, I'd be honored to go and, and speak of your love to another group of people. Great. And as you go, you're going to be born a dog. You're going to take on dogginess. You'll still have your humanity but you're going to take on dogginess and you are going to, you're, these two natures are going to be fused together because I want you to come in such a way that those dogs that are biting and devouring would be able to receive my message of love. And so I need to send you. As a matter of fact, I'm sending you not as a great Dane, but as a Chihuahua. You know, and I'm, I'm going to send you into these circumstances and you're going to be vulnerable and you're going to be looked down upon. And, you know, you think, well, that kind of seems extreme. I'm not sure if it's extreme enough. I, I, I agree with you. It feels a little strange to say it. But as you just think about it. Is it a bigger step to go from humanity into um, a doghood? Or is it a bigger step to go from divinity to his creation? I'll let you ponder it. But it is a massive step down. And the writer of Scripture says he humbled himself. He took on humanity. He wasn't worried about his reputation. That's kind of like saying, hey, I'll hang out with you and I'm not worried about my reputation. Which would be like, so then being around me is not going to help your reputation? Right. And Lord says, I'll come and become one of you. And so there's a, a, an incredible humility that the Lord shows as he comes in this incarnation, as he's born in Bethlehem, as he comes and is born of the Virgin Mary, a descendant of David. And it is an amazing, wonderful story that we read of. Of course, Hebrews tell, tells us that Jesus became a man that he might understand and have firsthand knowledge of our weakness of humanity. And that he can identify with us and our every need. I want you to understand that the Lord understands you. He understands your circumstances. He lived on this earth that he might be a, a priest, that he might be able to minister to you in such a way that he understands your weakness. He understands the things that you feel and you go through. And so come to the Lord. Understand that he came in such a way that he would be approachable. Move on into verses 6 and 7. Um, they make it to Bethlehem. It says, so it was. While they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no suitable place for Jesus to be born. Why? Well, the census, remember? They've called everybody in. And um, there's some examples of ancient homes um, that had caves and where the animals would be. And you go ahead and put that slide up for me, please. Um, and you can, this, is not, this is not the inn that he went to or the cave. But I, I love this illustration um, from archaeology because we can see this as you see the house runes are on the left there. And then they have that courtyard that would have had animals. And then you have the cave that's on the right that would have gone, uh, would have been also used for the animals. And so it was something that could have been just like this. Um, they, there was no room in the end, but they were able to go into the cave. Now, maybe was it associated with that same houses that they went to? We don't know. But um, that caves were used for places for animals is, is quite clear. As a matter of fact, and um, just, uh, so among the church fathers, Justin Martyr writes in approximately 150 A.D. that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a cave. And then Origen also uh, shows, uh, writes, and he says that he was shown the cave where Jesus was born. And so early church history kind of would accord with this type of um, idea that we're looking at this archaeological ruin, that there were caves and, and that would have been in there. Now, in Bethlehem today, there's more than one, but in Bethlehem today, um, there is uh, the Church of the Nativity. And the Church of the Nativity was built in 325 A.D. It was destroyed somewhere, or was destroyed and rebuilt somewhere around 530 A.D. But initially, was, a church was built around 325 in this location that um, they say was the birthplace of the Lord. And so it was destroyed, it was rebuilt again by Emperor Justinian, and it's been there for the last 1,500 years. So there's a lot of um, history surrounding the birthplace of the Lord, and um, whether it is actually the Church of the Nativity, which there is great archaeological evidence and historical evidence for, um, the problem that you have when you go to some of these sites is that they are, have been so overtaken by... Um, uh, you know, religious symbols, and you, you, can't, even, you can't even picture um, what the scene would have been like. But I think you can imagine it. it's just a cave. Maybe it was something that was even like this, and there was no place to go and be in a room and have privacy, but went and was among the animals. And we know among the animals because it was laid in a manger, right? This is a, a, a feeding or drinking trough for animals. But you know, it wasn't just the physical place there was, that there wasn't room for Jesus. There was no room for Jesus in the hearts, in the minds, and among many people. And when you begin to walk through the list of people that had no room for Jesus, it gets quite lengthy, doesn't it? Um, there was no room for Jesus um, with King Herod. When Herod heard another uh, king was born, he asked the Magi, hey, when you find him, let me know. I want to come and worship him. But we actually know that he wanted to go and kill him. And he did kill many of the young babies. You know, it's estimated that they're probably, because of the size of the city, there would have been only probably about 20 or 30 little boys that would have fit the description. So it was a small little town. You know, there was no room for Jesus among the religious leaders of the day. They had him crucified. They couldn't receive him. They didn't want to hear his teaching, and they didn't want to bow to his lordship. 
There was no room for those uh, uh, herds, the, the swine herdsmen uh, on the eastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus cast out the demons out of the demoniac and they went into the, the swine and ran off of the cliff and into the, the Sea of Galilee, the lake there, um, once the people found out about it and their financial loss, they begged him to leave the area. They had no room for him. Yeah, you might be touching people's lives, but you're messing with our, our, our pocketbook and we have no room for a person like you. Jesus went to his hometown and in his own hometown, they did not receive him. They actually tried to kill him, but it wasn't his hour. And he did not submit himself to their, uh, their plan to put him to death. Uh, among the secular leaders like Pilate and Agrippa, he was a, a, uh, a political hot potato. They didn't want to touch him. They wanted to make everybody happy. They, they did the wrong thing. But really, the, the question that concerns us today is not who are all the people who rejected Jesus, but it's to ask the question, do you have room for Jesus in your life? Not like your brand of Jesus, but Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you have room for him and all of his claims and all of his demands and all of the, the controversy that he brings to your life and to this world? Do you have room for Jesus of Nazareth? I know a lot of people will have room for the Jesus that they want to create themselves, and they create a Jesus that fits their lifestyle they want to live. They create a Jesus that fits their philosophy and their idea of living in a material world. And they, can, they, re, they recreate them. There's a, there's a million Jesuses out there. But I'm not asking you, do you have room for that Jesus? I'm asking you, do you have room for the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture? Who loves you? Who died on the cross for you? Who is returning and desires to see you have eternal life? Do you have room for him, the greatest mistake you could ever make is to crowd Jesus out for th something you think you have to have. Because if what you have to have causes you to reject Jesus Christ, that is a deception. And I pray that you will you'll have an encounter with God, that he will speak to you of his incredible love. Because you're not just pushing somebody away who wants to change your life. You're not just pushing away somebody who has, a, has made statements on how we should live our life. You're pushing away the creator and one that loves you and died on the cross for you. You're pushing away a loving creator. Don't do that. Don't do it. Make room in your life for him. We move on in verses 8 through 20. It, it may, hang on, before we get there, let me, just, let me just say a couple more things about this point of having room for Jesus in your life. When Jesus does come in, and if there are things that you look at in your life, it's like, well, I know to be a follower of Christ, I'm going to have to repent, I'm going to have to obey him, I'm going to have to follow him, and in my life, in the room, uh, you know, of my, my spiritual life, um, I, I don't know that I want him to come in. I don't know that I want him to be welcomed behind that door because when he, once he comes in, he's going to start changing things in that room. And the answer is yes, he absolutely will. He will change. Praise God he changes them. But if you don't know him, you might be afraid of the changes that he's going to bring. You might be afraid of how he'll rearrange the furniture of your life, how he might go into the cupboards and the closets of your life and begin to tweak with them and begin to change them. But let me tell you, 
He's got to take stuff out. You know, if you came home today and you saw a moving truck, and since the moment you left, your house is being, had been, you know, movers come in, they started emptying everything out. Everything. And it all was, uh, you know, you come home, you see this, and you're like, what in the world are you doing? Say, so hey, we're, we're removing everything. You can't stop them. It's like your, your house is now empty before you know it, and the, the truck goes away. And, but as soon as that truck goes away, the next one pulls up, and it starts, they start to bring in newer, better material possessions. And you've got a new couch, and you have the new appliances, and, and you have a a Christmas tree with all the presents under it and everything that you had, all the things that you were afraid to let go that bothered you as you saw them going to the house, suddenly it's been fully redesigned. It's a, it's a complete makeover. Are you going to be upset? No, you're not going to be upset. because it's, it's, But what had to happen before you could get the new renovated you know, house was every, all the old stuff had to go out. And this is where a lot of people get hung up with Jesus. Well, I, I, you know, I want the eternal life. I just don't want him to come in and do any redecorating. I don't want him to change the, the layout and the, the, the plans for my life. But listen, you've got to trust him and let him remove those things and he will bring in the good stuff, the great stuff. You can, be, you can count on it. And the things that cause you fear and think of, of letting go, hey, the Lord will bring in better. Now, Verses 8 through 20, we see that what his mission was, and that was he was born to save. There were many, there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. I mean, that stands out. You don't usually see babies born in a stable laid in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was the angel, uh, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And what is it they were told? Oh, he's the Savior. He's the Savior of the world. Now verse 18, all those who had heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I bet she did. I'm sure she did. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. So in verses 1 through 7, we see Jesus coming as a humble servant to minister to the needs of the world. In verses 8 through 20, we see that his primary focus in ministering was to save the souls of men. He was not on a humanitarian mission. He was not on a political campaign trail, and nor was he on a mission uh, to you know, save anything other than 
the lost souls of men and women. That was his focus. That is his uh, desire. And that still is the desire of the Lord here 2,000 years later is to save mankind. Jesus said it himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did I come? I came to save. But that's what we're, here, we're told. Right there in the, the beginning, and the angel announced to the shepherds, a Savior. Well, nobody is saved without the shedding of blood. This was something they would have known well. Now, um, the birth of Jesus is known as, in theological language, the incarnation, taking on human flesh. He needed to be near of kin to us. He had to be humanity if sin was going to be punished in him rather than in us. If there was going to be a substitute for me on the cross and for you, then it had to be humanity because humanity was the one that was guilty for sin. It wasn't divinity. It wasn't the second person of the Godhead. So Jesus came and he took on human flesh, sinless as he was, but still having human flesh, the sin was able to be punished and he was able to save mankind. Now there, um, in verse 8, um, or when we talk about save, save from what? Well, it's the, it's the punishment of, for all of eternity for the consequences of our sin. And so God doesn't want anybody to go into a Christless eternity, into an everlasting judgment. And so he's done the most radical thing anybody could ever think of. He sent his son to take on human flesh that he might punish his son so that you might be spared. Now, if you look at that and say, well, I don't like the way he did it, and you walk away from it, you will bear the consequences one day when you stand before him. I wish you would have done it this way. Hey, there's a lot of things you wish in life that don't come out the way you want. Amen? Amen. Well, there's a, there's a ton of things that, that you think of that you want to do that don't get to go your way. And then, you know what happens some of the time, not all the time, some of the time, you'll look back and you'll say, oh, I am so thankful that that thing that I wanted to do, I sought to do, I, the career I was after, whatever, I'm so glad it did not work out. Oh, that would have been a nightmare. And, and this isn't even a spiritual thing. It's just, you know, there's choices that are before us in life. We think we want it, but once we see the full picture, we're like, I'm glad I didn't get that. I'm glad I didn't marry him. I'm glad I didn't marry her. You know, and so this is the reality. And, and you... And you or in that same place. You may think, well, I don't think God should have done it this way. I don't think he could, should have required this. But you're not God. You're not God. But who is God is the one who's all wise and knowing and loves you and has your best interest in mind. Listen, you may think you have the best course in mind for yourself, but as I was just saying, you will realize that some of your best plans and dreams would have been nightmares for you had they come to pass. And this is the ultimate one. Do not reject the Lord, but receive his love. Let him save you from this coming judgment. Now, there are some out there, and I'm not going to solve this issue. I'm not even going to try and land particularly on one thing. But some will say, you know, well, you know, the, my big whole hang up with Christmas is we know that this isn't the time of the year that Jesus was born because it is um, winter and they never kept sheep in the winter in the fields. And so there would have been no shepherds to come and sing their song to. But we hear that. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have heard that? Okay, a lot of you. Well, 
just listen to this. And I'm going to quote to you. And this is written by uh, Leon Morris, who is quoting from um, the Talmud and the Mishnah. Um, and actually, I don't have the quote, but I can tell you exactly what it says. Um, is that it was very common at this time of the year for some of the temple sheep that would be brought in for sacrifices to be held and kept under watch in the fields in Bethlehem. So this is not historically accurate. Um, and I am not, therefore, saying Jesus was born on December 25th. But this is often what people want to do to ruin your Christmas. Like, hey, he wasn't even born. It's winter time. Well, but yeah, but the, the, the his, those who are writing about what was going on in those days actually said that there were shepherds in the fields at this time of the year. I know, it's exciting. And so um, it, it could have been. It could have been at this time of the year. Um, and, you know, there are others will come and, and they try to say, well, you know, you shouldn't even have a Christmas tree because this is, this is an idol. And it's not an idol. Don't make it an idol. Anything could be an idol. It's not an idol. I mean, it's, it's a tree that's, that's decorated and you can read the history of this. And there's a lot that, there's some history that says Martin Luther was the first one. He was walking through the forest and he saw on a clear night all the stars out in the heaven as he was looking through the pines. He saw all the... the uh, the stars kind of coming through, and it looked like a tree that had been decorated. So, I mean, listen, there's all kinds of stuff. It's not going to solve anything, but I just want to say, don't get hung up on, on that. There's plenty of uh, possibilities that it did happen at this time of the year. But we celebrate it all year long, don't we? I mean, watch, watch the songs we sing in a year from now. I mean, in, in next month. Um, I guess which will be next year. You know, li listen to the, the, the comments we'll say to each other. We will refer to the coming of Jesus and we'll sing. So we don't only do this at this time of a year. We realize this happens all year long. Now here's an interesting thing about shepherds. He came and he announced to them, could you imagine the best concert that has ever happened on planet Earth? The one that the angels had planned for, we don't know how long, but they knew he was going to come. And they had this heavenly host. And when the curtains were parted and opened up and they looked out onto the congregation or the, the crowd that had gathered, all they saw were a few frightened shepherds. That's it. This was in, did he do it in Rome? You know, didn't do it in Jerusalem, didn't do it in Athens. They did it. They didn't do it in Alexandria. They did it in a little tiny town in a field that only had a few shepherds. And what are we to think of shepherds? Well, you know, because of this account and because of a thousand years earlier, David being a shepherd, we have a really fond idea of shepherds. Jesus said, you know, he was a good shepherd, right? So we have a fond idea of shepherds. But in the day in which these shepherds received this message, shepherds were not trusted. Let me read to you um, about this. It says, um, it is, and this is from Leon Morris, it, says, it is not likely that shepherds were, uh, it, it is not unlikely that shepherds were pasturing flocks destined for the temple sacrifices. Flocks were supposed to be kept only in the wilderness, um, and a rabbinic rule provides that any animal found between Jerusalem, this is the quote I was looking for before, so I'm sorry here, but you'll, you'll get it. Um, and a rabbinic rule provides that any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be a sacrificial victim. 
The same rule speaks of finding the Passover offerings within 30 days. All right, so that was a quote I was looking for before. But here's the, the, the character of the shepherds. One should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds, uh, of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest, according to the Sanhedrin, and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners from whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. So watch those little shepherds in your manger scenes, okay? Because they're, these are guys that, you know, you, they were not to be trusted. Another author says, as a, class of shepherd, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. More regrettable was their unfortunate habit, habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. They were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law uh, of courts. And God gives them the eyewitness account for them to go and tell? What a terrible plan! Nobody's going to believe them. They're shepherds. We, they can't even testify in court. And yet God announces to them the outcast that nobody wanted. And you look at that and say, well, what do you make of this? God comes for the outcasts. And if you are thinking of in your, as you look at your life and say, yeah, okay, I want to make room in my heart. I actually, I believe that there is room in my heart, but I don't think he wants to come into this stable. I don't think he wants to come into this life because of the way I've lived. No, no. He comes to the outcast. The first announcement was to a group of people who upon seeing and hearing and reported, nobody would have believed them because of who they were. But what is God saying? He says, I want you. You're important to me that you know this and that you hear this. First John 1, 8 through 10, and we'll close here. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So Jesus came to save even the shepherds, even those that are like the shepherds. People like you, people like me. The Lord wants to redeem. And so this is the reminder that we get from Scripture of that first Christmas and what was taking place. So as we wrap this up, my question is, have you experienced the goodness that God wants to bring into your life through His Son, Jesus? Have you given Him permission to come into the rooms of your life and begin to rearrange and to take out and to bring in if you want the new, you've got to get rid of the old. And the Lord will remove that. But you've got, to, you've got to be willing to receive that work into your life. He will not kick the doors down. He will not be an aggressive mover and come in and just rip things out without your permission. You must receive that ministry of redemption. And if you're thinking, well, I don't think the, he would want somebody like me. Just one word, shepherd. He went to those that nobody would have liked. He went to those that nobody would have trusted. He went to the outcasts. And if you feel like you are an outcast from the Lord, the Lord is telling you right now and right here, 
I want you. I want to come into your life. He wants to bring you great joy. He wants you to experience the peace that the Prince of Peace has brought. You know, as we close, one application for us as believers, and there are many from this, but just one. If Jesus came to be a servant in the incarnation, and this is the incarnation happened on Christmas Day, on the day that Jesus was born, then really, if we're going to walk in this true spirit of Christmas, we're going to be walking in a servanthood nature with one another. And that's exactly what Philippians chapter 2 goes on to say, is let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, right? Taking the form of a bondservant, he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. And so how we walk this out is that we walk in a servant manner. I put the needs of others before my own. So as we, as we take this message in, have a chance to talk about it today, um, may we find ourselves walking in the joy that the Lord has brought to us, the peace, and may those around us find um, that they're walking into a person, a man or a woman that is full of kindness and is a servant just like their master Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the accounts that you have left behind, these historical accounts that teach us of who you are and why you came. And Lord, I realize for many of us in here, this is just a reminder of, of, of the events that are meaningful to us and that have touched our life and have redeemed us and saved us. And so, Lord, we want to give you praise and we want to give you honor. But, Lord, I also pray for those who are here who they need to make room in their heart for you. They need to welcome you in. While we're just praying here, if you need to welcome Jesus into your heart, why don't you do it? Why don't you trust this God who said he loves you and sent his son? Why don't you welcome him into your life right now to, to forgive you of the sins you've committed? All unrighteousness will be removed. And allow him to come in and rearrange your life. I mean, your, your concern of, well, there's things I'm going to have to give up. Yeah, you're right, there are. Not going to sell you something that's not real. You definitely, the, the word repent is in the Bible for reasons, because what we do. But I, I urge you to come and to repent and turn to Jesus. So right where you sit, if you want to get right with God, then why don't you just say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. I agree with you about the sinfulness of my sin. And I, I turn from that, and I turn to you, forgive me and cleanse me. Lord, I want to pray for those that are inviting you into their life. They're welcoming the work of salvation that you've come and you've brought. Lord, I pray that they would experience, Lord, the, your fullness, that you would open their eyes to see, that the word of God would come alive, that they would have such a hunger for fellowship and the reading of scriptures and, and find such joy in obeying you. Lord, we pray for the radical transformation in their life. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.